Why do smart people do stupid things? What's the brain science behind behavior change? And what can you do in practice to support peak performance? Starting points for all of those on this episode. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 367. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. We, of course, as leaders are always concerned about how do we support our own peak performance, but also to support the peak performance of others. That's certainly our intention. It's the intention of almost everyone who is a part of our organization or that we have the privileged influence. And yet, of course, the realities come that we don't always do that well. And sometimes uh, we even do things that aren't smart or downright stupid. Uh, And one of the reasons I'm so glad our guest is here today is to help us to uncover some of the science, but also some of the practical things that we can do to avoid some of the stupid things. Because even if you're smart, even if your team is smart, you can still produce poor outcomes. We see that in the media every day, and certainly we all have examples of that in our own leadership. I am so glad to welcome to the show today Nada Wenzels. She is the Global Solutions Director at the Jonah Group. The Jonah Group partners with global organizations to achieve breakthrough results in safety, well-being, and leadership. She's a master coach, facilitator, and international speaker with qualifications in mechanical engineering, neuroscience, and organizational psychology. Nada, I have a feeling we're going to tap into all of those areas of expertise in this conversation. <laughs> I'm so glad to welcome you here. Oh, thank you very much, Dave, and thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I am so glad to have you, and I was really captivated when we first talked of just your background and some of your interests, but also your story. And in particular, you have a story about this, about smart people doing stupid things. And you and your husband have a situation that happened in your life that speaks to this. I actually think that might be a good place for us to start our conversation. Would you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. What it basically involves, oh, I'm giving away my age now. 20 years ago, I was involved in a significant fire accident, which resulted in me having 35% burns to my body and uh, my husband, Rob, having 15% burns to his body. Now, just to set the scene, my background at the time, I was working as an offshore engineer uh, with ESSO uh, on the platforms, and my husband was working in the mining industry. So, you know, qualifications, there was two mechanical engineering degrees there in the background. And look, what had happened is we actually went camping, more camping in a a remote part of Australia, and we hiked for seven hours inland. It was tiring, it was exhausting, it was pouring. Uh, We got to our landing spot, our camping spot, and we, yeah, we were in the tent. You know, I handed Rob the gas cylinder. I had a, you know, I was trying to fish around for the torch, couldn't find it, just kind of found a little candle, lit that. And so, look, just to set the scene, you know, you don't need to be an engineer, but um, you've got an ignition source being a candle, You've got someone fiddling around with a gas cylinder trying to, you know, get the gas cylinder working and you've got confined space being the tent. So put those three together and, um, you know, boom. So as Rob was trying to get the gas cylinder 
attached, a bit of gas leaked, leaked in the tent. I had the candle going and, and then the next minute we were just surrounded by fire. So that that was pretty scary. For those that have been camping, a tent is difficult to open when you're in it with those three or four layers, let alone when you're engulfed in a tent. We were remote. I remember when the fire had started, I remember sitting in the tent, not being able to open the tent and thinking, oh, we're going to die. I couldn't see my husband. I could see flames and I could see red everywhere. And then I had a moment of sanity. I thought, okay, I've got to wait for the tent to melt before I can get out. So for me, it felt like there was a few minutes of waiting, but it was probably a few seconds. And anyway, I got out of the tent and and then I turned back and I just saw Rob completely aflame, which scared me. And then I saw the look on his face and he was looking at my legs and the flames pouring off my body. Three months later, six skin graft operations later, you know, I was able to, you know, hobble out of the hospital. And uh, I remember lying in the hospital bed thinking, you know, this shouldn't have happened. You know, two mechanical engineers, right, gas confined space ignition source. I mean, really, what were we thinking? Mm. Me from the oil and gas industry, Rob from the mining industry. So I actually felt quite ashamed. But I think the moment for me, there was a turning point. It was such a small thing, but often it's the small things that make us think different. But after, you know, having had the six skin graft operations and after the first moment I walked out of the hospital and I had the bandages and I had the compression stockings, I felt wind on my skin for the first time in months. And I was standing on one of the busiest roads in Melbourne in Australia and just crying. And I felt an enormous sense of gratitude to be alive, to feel, right? And so many of us go through our life not feeling or we numb ourselves. You know, we numb ourselves by living in a box, working in a box, driving a box, looking at a box. But I felt so much in that little bit of wind against my skin. And it was really in that moment that I decided that I was going to live an absolutely extraordinary life. Didn't know what it was going to look like. I was going to live an extraordinary life and I wasn't okay with mediocrity. I wasn't okay with having so many boundaries in relationships or accepting things. And so really that incident is what started the inquiry. You know, what is it that drives human behavior? Why is it that smart people do stupid things, right? Mm, Yeah, indeed. And so that got me interested in psychology and neuroscience and, you know, hence where I am now, which is very much about unpacking human behavior, peak performance and really supporting people to live extraordinary lives that they love. That's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you because you have such a unique voice in this space, not only with your expertise and not only from the work you do, but also having been a survivor of an accident like this, where very much the things that you teach people how to do came into play. And it is fascinating, isn't it, how some of the darkest moments in our lives can provide us the perspective for gratitude, isn't it? I, and I hear so much of that gratitude in your your work and the work you do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I guess the question is, you know, do you need to have an accident? Do you need to have something major to shift your direction? 
And if you'd asked me this question 20 years ago, I would have said yes. <laughs> but from now understanding human behavior, understanding human psychology, understanding the brain and how it works, one of the things that we know is in terms of decision making and what has people shift the direction in which they head in, the brain doesn't actually know the difference between imagined and real. We can imagine something bad happening or something bad could happen. And just the thought of something bad happening can shift our direction. But do we need to have significant emotional experiences to shift our direction, to shift the impact that we're actually having on people? And the answer is no. We can actually use human psychology and understanding how the brain works to get the most out of people, but also for us to look at those moments, whether it's wind on the skin or whether it's, you know, noticing the impact we're having on people in the environment to then get us to shift, you know, in, in what we do and how we do it. I'm thinking about what you just said in the context, and I don't know if the psychology or the neuroscience is the same, but I think about you know, waking up in the morning after a very intense dream, either positive or negative, and your body, you know, having all the physiological effects like that was real and it, and sometimes taking a few minutes to realize like, oh, this wasn't real, that just happened. And yet our mm. brains have that mm. capacity, that, that ability to put us in that place. And and that's why I'm, I'm really interested in some of your work and how you teach organizations to really change behavior so people don't do stupid things, right? And one thing that I'm, I'm curious about that you talk about is that pain is a stronger motivator than pleasure. Tell me about mm. that. Let me explain to you the brain and uh, really simple concepts of how it works. And I want to introduce you to two particularly important areas around decision making. So essentially the brain is like one big muscle, one big muscle of um, mass, of neural pathways. And there are two parts that determine decision making. One is what we call fast brain. It's where we, it's all kind of automatic thinking. It's either automatic reaction because uh, we've been in a certain situation. It's fast. It's automatic. It's reactive. It's also emotional, right? And so if you think about some of the habits that we have in place that we don't think about, such as, you know, getting in the car and driving from point A to point B or waking up in the morning and, you know, fumbling our way down the stairs to the coffee machine, those automatic behaviors live in the fast brain. Also, what lives in the fast brain is the emotional reaction. So we've been programmed through just living how to respond and react to situations. That fast brain we also call the limbic system. Now, the bulk of our decisions actually come from there. There's the other part of our brain we call it the slow brain uh, which we, is called the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex takes a lot more energy. We have to think through processes. Often it is responsive rather than reactive. Mm. It requires hard thinking. And so if you've ever, you know, come home at the end of the day and you felt, God, my brain has, my brain feels fried Often that's because you've used your prefrontal cortex and you have no more energy. And so the prefrontal cortex is a bit like a battery and it's got a limited amount of energy. Now, we are wired to survive. You know, back in the day, we were wired to survive, to have basic food, shelter, 
these days we're actually wired to survive social situations. So what we know is that for us to survive, we need to conserve our energy. So we don't want to use that part of our brain that takes up energy. So we're not wired to want to think too hard. We're wired to do what we know. We're wired to do what's comfortable. So if you think about it, part of our wiring is, you know, what we call social survival. And what we mean by that is we want to be in environments which actually create pleasure. If we are in an environment that creates pain, so for example, if we're working with a team of people and relationships are poor, then we are wired to move away from it because that social situation creates pain or even the perception of pain. Whereas, you know, if we're in an environment where there are great relationships and we feel good and we're respected and we feel emotionally safe, then we'll move towards it. So pain initiates change. If you want someone to change their behavior, if people are not doing what you want them to be doing, often it's because they're comfortable, right? And change takes up energy. We don't want to take up energy. Our brain is wired to not use too much energy. But what has people shift gears, what has people or the brain switch on to say, yep, you know, I need to change, I need to put energy in this, is high level of discomfort. And in actual fact, they say that pain is a motivator eight times more than pleasure in some of the, the literature. Yeah, it's really fascinating thinking about that from a leadership standpoint. It, it's interesting to me that I, I know you think about and and really look at performance around the relationship between performance, but also the relationship with stress. And I think that ties into some of the brain science here as far as how much we are you know, bored and on autopilot versus the other end of the extreme where we've got that burnout almost. How does that come together as far as thinking about how to really perform well? There's a zone we talk about called healthy fear. <laughs> so we want people to, we want their limbic system to be comfortable and happy, but not too happy, right? We need them on alert a little bit. We want them to be responsive rather than reactive. So we talk about healthy fear and you want people to be operating in a zone of healthy fear. Now, how this plays out in safety is, you know, you can be working on an oil rig or in a mine, but if people have been used to doing it day in, day out, day in, day out, they get, they get so comfortable with it and they create so many habits that then sits in their limbic system that they've shut off their prefrontal cortex, right? And so we get people that are now complacent. Mm. And so if people are complacent, they're not actually using their thinking brain, they're using their automatic brain. And so what we need to do is increase their level or the increase their perception of pain associated with a particular thing. So it could be as simple as a person, you know, a, tar you know, a, a safe rule could be that you need to put your seatbelt on in a forklift when you're driving it. And one of the complaints is, well, you know, our guys don't do it. Well, why don't they put their seatbelts on? Well, their perception is you know, there's more comfort associated with not putting your seatbelt on than the pain of not putting your seatbelt on. So we need to remind them of the things that can go wrong. We need to make sure that there's accountability processes in place. We need to actually, you know, help them imagine what could go wrong with a forklift, you know, rolling over, the impact of family. So we want to increase the, what we call the perception of pain and increase that threshold. 
similarly on the other end, and this is where mental health kicks in, so on one end of the spectrum you've got complacency. On the other end of the spectrum you have stress overload. Now, if you have got too much stress going on, you know, whether it's external stress because of the environment that you're in or that you're constantly under pressure, and look, we're designed to respond well to stress, but we are not designed to be in a chronic stress mode. If we keep on putting pressure on people with deadlines, schedules, customer requirements, if there is a consistent and chronic amount of stress, that's where disease actually kicks in. The word disease, the body's not at ease. We're not wired to be in constant stress mode. We are wired to respond to stressful situations. But operating in that constant stress mode, that's where you start to see mental health issues kick in, right? You see people you know, go into the sense of feeling flat and burned out to then mild depression or anxiety and then completely switching off and just being disengaged. How do we get leaders to start to acknowledge that how people feel and the emotional environment that they operate in is actually going to govern whether you get someone's automatic thinking more of the same or someone operating at peak performance in that healthy fear mode. Oh, fascinating. And and so our, our goal from a leadership standpoint, not only for ourselves, but for our organization, is we really want to find that mid-zone of peak performance where we've got a good amount of healthy stress, not too little, but not too much, so that we really are able to create the environment where people can perform at their best. So how do you get people to start to think of getting to that zone? What are some mm. of the steps that you're teaching leaders how to do? One of the concepts we talk about, which is really quite powerful, is the two-degree shift. You know, change is not about major evolution. Like, it's not about a necessarily massive overhaul. Change is about a two-degree shift in thinking and in behavior and in attitude. And, you know, when I used to fly planes, I learned something really important. One, you needed to have a flight plan, right? Mm. But two, the slightest shift in your coordinates would have you end up in a different place. Imagine a map of Australia and, you know, take yourself to the western part of Australia. So if you're in the western part of Australia and you are in a plane headed to Brazil for a vacation, flying west of Australia, headed to Brazil, if all you did was literally just change your course by two degrees, you would end up in a very, very different place. You'd actually end up in North America. I think it's like Detroit somewhere. So we know just from a flying an airplane, you change your course by two degrees, it has you end up very differently. So when we talk about changing behavior, it actually starts with a leader recognizing that the impact they have on their direct reports, the impact that they have on the people around them is huge, right? In, in fact, it's 70%. 70% of a team's behavior at work is a direct reflection of their leader. What the leader does, doesn't say, do, doesn't do, even the, the leader's reactions. 
And, you know, if you think about it as a leader, if we have such a massive impact on the people around us, I guess the question is to what degree are we even aware of how we're landing, how we're, what kind of environment we're creating? Are we creating an emotionally safe environment or emotionally toxic environment? Are we creating an environment that people want to that people want to move towards and be a part of and feel free to be the best who they are and authentic, you know, bring their authentic self? Or are we creating a toxic environment which shames, blames, aggravates? There's one story that you know we shared with one company, and it came out of the football locker rooms. And there's a, a there's a, a famous story about uh, an Australian football team who were performing really badly for a number of years and it was actually just last year they completely transformed but they didn't do anything different on the field what they did different was off the field and what they did is that they introduced something called the triple h concept and it was called a uh, heartache hero and highlight and so before every before they went on the field each training session they would rotate and they would have one player share every, like you know, on a weekly basis, a hero in their life, a highlight in their life, and a heartache in their life. And what this did is it just pulled away the mask. Yeah, it got people, it got the team to relate to each other as human beings, not just players. And so when they went then on the field, they were playing a different game from a different, uh, at a different level. Now, with one of the companies that we're working with, you know, we were sharing this story and they said, oh, you know what, one of the things we often do is before every meeting is, you know, we, we talk about safety, we have a safety moment. But, you know, the safety moment has become, I think there's a bit of complacency around there or it's become a bit shallow or, you know, we do toolbox talks but people aren't really engaged. It's like, okay, great, right? First point, of no, first point is leaders are noticing where people are complacent, mm -hmm. awesome, and then what do we need to do to shift the energy? And so this one company actually replaced their safety moments with a triple H. And imagine the power, right? Imagine the power of one person spending 10 minutes just sharing a highlight hero or heartache. It creates a level of authenticity and emotional safety net that then and it gives people permission to bring their best ideas to the table. Mm. Anyway, this company transformed its safety performance by 65%. You know, production went up 15% over a 12-month period. They made some pretty big decisions of what to let go and not let go. But it just created that platform for the robust conversations that we've been ignoring in the business that we're now not going to ignore because we're having authentic conversations. We need to get more interested in what we think how we feel, what we do, and how we land. And this shift in ourselves, it's not about creating a massive, massive change, but it's about looking at one area and just shifting something small, which then has a massive, massive impact. I love this concept of the two-degree shift, and maybe it's confirmation bias since we do something so similar in our academy, but it's, it's trying to focus on one thing, one small thing, uh, and so many of the executive coaches, as you know, not to do this as well, of, of focusing on one thing to work with someone on versus trying to make massive amounts of change. And even in a, even in a 
major crisis mode, it's very, very hard to get people in an organization to make a 90 degree or 180 degree shift on something. And so we're just going to be way more successful as leaders of making those smaller shifts. And as you point out, over time, that makes a big difference on trajectory. And one of the things you have shared with me is that there's some things around language prompts and cues and indicators that can help with this too. And, and, and thinking about this from making those two degree shifts, how does that work? What do you do around that when you're helping people to make that shift? I think, you know, if I was to leave any, leave the listeners with one thing, it would be introducing them to the concept of the above the line, below the line thinking. Because I think if we can start to just become more conscious as leaders where we're operating from, like what when I say what we're operating from, are we coming from a place of what we call above the line, which is about growth mindset, it is about authenticity, it is about creating an emotionally safe environment. Do we actually feel safe, right? Or are we coming from below the line, which is about fixed growth control? And there's two different energies, right? Growth mindset, you feel like you're in flow, it feels great, you want to be around it, it feels natural, right? Below the line comes, it kind of feels more forced. It's kind of like a hard energy associated with it. And so I think, you know, one of the first things as a leader is to get conscious and present or mindful of where am I coming from? Who am I, in this moment, who am I being? Am I going into this meeting from an above the line mindset, which is about growth and warmth and expansion? Or are we coming from a below the line mindset, which is just give me some space. I need to just kind of control my environment right here, right now. I just need this answer and there's a hardness associated with it. That hardness is what creates pain. That hardness is what has people move away from you, away from your message. Whereas the expansive self has people want to engage, move towards you, whether it's how you even walk into a meeting, right? Or even how you respond to what people say. So, you know, for example, as a leader, if you have a team of people and you notice one or two people and their performance is low, do you respond from a below the line mindset, which is a, you know, for example, Peter, I noticed your you know, performance is low. Why? Right? That why language is immediately going to set them into threat response, is immediately going to send them into blaming and protecting. Or do we actually say, hey, Peter, I noticed your performance has been slipping. Are you okay? You know, before, what, what we think determines how we feel, which determines what we do, which determines the result. As leaders, typically we focus on the result and the doing. We want to move leaders' dials so that we are becoming more conscious of what they're thinking and how they're feeling and getting them to consciously choose to operate from what we call above the line. When you say language prompts, then that's the kind of distinction, that two-degree two shift of changing the language of rather from the why to the are you okay to really speak to a different part of the brain that doesn't necessarily elicit that fear-based response, but elicits that response that's really thinking about, you know, much more healthy. How do I perform well? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And we just want to shift the dial from, you know, fixing and doing. I mean, how often, you know, there's a problem and a company will throw more training or more audits or do more, more, more. There's like, go fix, go fix, go do, go do. That's just not working anymore, right? People are exhausted. People are fatigued. It's kind of going backwards. We need to shift our thinking to come from a place of more compassion and care, really, ultimately, more about understanding human behavior, uh, understanding the impact that we have. So absolutely. So when we talk about shifting language, it's shifting language for yourself, right? So be conscious and ask yourself, where is my line today, above or below? Yeah. What do I need to do to step above the line? And that, that's another conversation about developing emotional resilience. Mm. But if all you do is check in, where's my line today? And then just shift your physiology, just shift and decide, you know what, I'm going to come from above the line. I'm going to come from a place of growth. I'm going to come from a place of compassion. Notice how shifting what you think impacts how you feel. And when you shift how what you think internally and it impacts how you feel, different words will come out of your mouth. What's the distinction it, between the language prompts and cues and indicators? So as a leader, if all you did was become more conscious and ask yourself, is what I'm doing creating, getting the best out of people, emotionally safe versus emotionally toxic, you want to look for indicators for which bucket you're operating in. And there's three levels. One is for self, where are you coming from? The other is for team. So what are you hearing people saying or seeing people doing? And you just want to start to actually be conscious and notice the indicators to help you understand, you know, which space you're coming from. So if you notice that your team energy is controlled or people are not speaking up, or they're more concerned about, you know, following, uh, not rocking the boat, or if they're second-guessing themselves, or if you find yourself constantly complaining about your team's performance because they're not good enough, they're what we call indicators that you are operating in a below-the-line mindset. Mm. Indicators that you're operating from above-the-line mindset is, one, you feel better, two, you feel comfortable in actually thinking out loud (laughs) and figuring things out, Your team feels comfortable in thinking out loud. There is a robust level of conversation happening and there are more care conversations actually happening. Like care is something that you actually see, hear and feel. So when we talk about a two-degree shift, you can shift what you're doing, but the real gold is in shifting what you're thinking, but to shift what you think, you now you first have to become aware of it, conscious of it, and even interested in it. There's so much here, Nada, that's really helpful to me of thinking about behavior change. I love the two-degree shift concept and above the line and below the line, and, and also thinking about just the optimal stress level and creating some discomfort uh, in order to allow us to all perform at the peak level. So thank you so much for bringing all this You have provided a resource that's going to be helpful to many of us as well. We've got a link set up and we're going to have it in the weekly leadership guide to a webinar you've done on how to apply brain theory to influence the people around you. So for those who are interested in diving in more on some of the brain science and and especially those of you who are thinking about 
changing behavior in an organization, especially if it is around something like safety, I think that'd be a really helpful uh, resource for you. So watch for that. Nada Wenzel from the Jonah Group, thank you for your wisdom and also for your courage in making us a little bit uncomfortable. So we start to make those two degree shifts. I so appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dave. Whenever I'm trying to think of improving my own performance and how I change my own behavior, one of the things I find helpful is inspiration from others. And if that would be helpful to you as well, I hope you'll consider checking out some of the recent Saturday casts. Those are episodes that are related directly to today's conversation because they feature the success stories and the journeys of some of our listeners and Academy members. And three of those that have aired recently in particular that'll be helpful to you It would be episode 349, first of all, the path to start leading your team. John Pinheiro was on that episode talking about how he has made the transition uh, to take over a new team, uh, moving into a new role, and how he did that utilizing some of the models and the books that he's come across from the show and other places in order to make that a very successful transition for him and his organization. I've recommended this episode to many people who are in the process of making that move or have recently made that move to take over a new team. Again, episode 349 will be a great place for you. Also, a value would be episode 351, the value of pivoting for growth. Beth Garrison was on that show talking about how she has been on the journey of uh, taking over as a CEO of a nonprofit firm and then eventually moving into starting her own business and the pivots she's had to go through along the way in order to make that a very successful successful transition. Lots of behavior change there, of course. Episode 351 will be a value to you if you're going through lots of change right now. And then finally, episode 357, how personal clarity engages others. Jeff Phipps uh, was on that episode talking about his journey and his career and reaching a great level of success professionally, and yet you know finding that something was missing, and then going back and really looking at his own personal leadership if jumping in and continuing his education and all of the amazing things that have come out of that for him in the last few years, lots of changes there. Uh, so many of them supporting him and the people he works with in his organization. Episode 357 will be helpful to you as some inspiration for that. All of those Saturday casts you can track down by going to the Coaching for Leaders podcast library and you can actually click on the button that says saturday cast uh, that features the stories of our listeners and academy members more of those coming and if you'd like to get access to all of the past episodes in the podcast library as well All you need to do is go over to coachingforleaders.com. You can set up your free membership. When you do, you'll get access to the entire library of episodes we've aired since 2011 with all the expert interviews sorted by topic. In addition, the member cast, my online library, and access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, it'll help you to get some immediate practical steps to become a better leader. It features a number of the expert interviews on this show over the last seven years and some of the key lessons. That's a great starting point if you're just picking up the podcast very recently. And you can access all of that again at coachingforleaders.com. And next week is our monthly question and answer show. You can submit your question for consideration either for next week's show or for the first 
question answer show that's on the first Monday of every month just by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That's the very best way to get your question to us for consideration. Thank you so much this week to Healthy Giraffe in Mexico and C22831 here in the States for the kind reviews you both left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Hey, if you'd like to leave a rating or review for the show, go to coachingforleaders.com slash Apple or whatever platform you use. And uh, speaking of platforms, if you're an Overcast user and this episode was helpful, hit the star button on the app to recommend it to others. Thank you if you do either. Have a fabulous week and see you back next week for our monthly Q&A show. Have a great day. Take care.